2: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW, avoid, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Welcome to the New Books Network.
3: Greetings from Mayagüez, Puerto Rico. I am Jeffrey Hurley-Guimera, professor in the Departamento de Humanidades de la Universidad de Puerto Rico in Mayagüez. This podcast, Nuevos Horizontes or New Horizons, looks in on books in cultural studies, art, thought, literature, decolonial themes with a Caribbean axis anchored here in Maya Voice. It is sponsored by the Humanities Department and our graduate program in Cultural and Humanistic Studies, and in part by the Mellon Foundation. The co-host for today's episode is Risha Chamsky.
1: Hi, Duff. Thank you for inviting me to join you today. I'm a professor in the Department of English here at UPIAri Mayaguas, and I am the director of our new oral history lab. The oral history lab is dedicated to recording the stories of the Puerto Rican archipelago with a special focus on climate justice.
3: Super. Awesome. Uh, So today we're interviewing Ilaria Tabuso-Marcian, author, critic, and professor at Arizona State University. She is the author of the book that we're going to be talking about, The Cultural Roots of Slow Food, Peasants, Partisans, and the Landscape of Italian Resistance, published by Lexington Books in 2023. Thank you very much, Ilaria, for being with us today.
0: Thank you, Jeffrey, for having me today as a guest in your uh, podcast. And thank you, Risha, for being the co-host.
3: Awesome. So this is our very first podcast in English. We have a bunch in, in Spanish in case uh, someone who's listening might be interested in, in, uh, uh, in jumping over to New Books Network en Español. So uh, I have a brief summary of the book that I'm going to read in just a moment and some questions that our graduate students have prepared. But before that, I wanted to detail a little bit of how this book came into my hands. Andrea Righi is a professor at Monash University in Australia, and he's a friend and collaborator. And a person with whom I share a great deal of interest and we specifically are interested in in topics related to Gramsci and his notebooks and he recommended that we interview Eladia. So I wanted to thank Eladia for this wonderful book and also for Andrea for, for the connection. Uh, my, my reading of the book is, is my very first foray into food studies and throughout my note-taking and, and interpretation I found myself pausing to reflect about my own relationship with food, uh, how it plays such an important role not only in my family but also in the community where I live, uh, but also scholarly contexts art, philosophy, history, science, and our daily life here on campus today. There are many different angles to approach food studies, when nutrition, links to local and distant agriculture, and also well-being. I find myself very interested particularly in how culinary arts criticism also looks beyond food consumption towards topics like aesthetic appreciation of food and also engaging social justice questions in gesturing toward Thinking about food as a node of sustainability and eco-critical thought and praxis. And I congratulate you, Laria, on all of those things. Slow food is, is an alternative to fast food, but it goes, goes far beyond those terms. As Laria notes, starting with food, a concrete and material human need, as well as a source of nourishment and pleasure, the slow food movement proposes a new intellectual perspective in material culture a political, social, economic, and more importantly, ecological paradigm shift coming from below, from the margins, from the global south, as a form of liberation from poverty, hunger, inequality, and ecological and human exploitation. It's very beautifully said there. Uh, The cultural roots of slow food, peasants, partisans, and the landscape of Italian resistance is an artfully written, precise, and accessible analysis that focuses on a variety of intellectual angles related to food justice literature, documentary film, and also argues that contemporary forms of environmental activism can be understood as rooted in local food and sustainable farming, and the ways that these link to Italian peasant culture and their contributions to the resistance movement during World War II. This book looks in on the hinterlands to demonstrate that peasants, by sharing their knowledge of the land and traditional practices, produce their own organic intellectuals. Some examples examined in the book are Alcide Servi, Nuto Rebelli, and Hermano Olmi. Ilaria Tabuso-Marcian argues that their work, personal experiences, and visions of resistance foreground the cultural roots of the slow food, international grassroots movement. She posits that today, slow food in the communities of the Teja Madre in Italy and around the world represent one of the many examples of these new organic intellectuals committed to rebuild a more harmonious and sustainable relationship with the land. So uh, our podcast begins with with a set of questions. Uh, The first section is called From Context to Text, Biography, Experiences and Mentors.
1: That was a lovely introduction, Jeffrey, And uh, I'm very excited for this conversation today. Um, Ilaria, can you please tell us a little bit about your biography, your interests, training and experiences and how all of this has
0: crystallized in this book? Thank you, Risha, for the question, and it uh, seems almost like a million-dollar question. Uh, <laughs> I would like to summarize and, and try to make the most important points and see if uh, they, they make sense and connecting to each other. Uh, first of all, my academic history is not very ni- linear, and so I'm going to start from uh, a long time ago when I graduated from the University of Rome, La Sapienza with a bachelor and master degree in literature and philosophy and a specialized j- specializing actually in uh, theory and critics of cinema and theater. So that is uh, my first uh, academic background. Um, with that said, I had uh, a gap of almost 10 years between my master and then my PhD that I had um, the pleasure to pursue a uh, UCSD in california and during those 10 years a lot of things happen which is called life in general and then, so i remember in fact when uh, i studied my phd that one of the professors when i was doing the seminars they would say oh you you come from the world and i was wondering what did she meant by this and then i realized that actually she just meaning she just meant that i was I Yes, I I had a real, you know, uh, regular life before coming back to to the studies. And during those 10 years, I traveled the world. I spent three years in India with my husband before going back to San Diego. And uh, I think that that 10 years uh, gap really helped me to mature and clarify some ideas when I went to graduate school before that what i could say is that i come from a family of a single mother my father died when i was four years old and my mother never remarried and uh, i think that the memory of my father and the loss of my father in my family created a, 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 a. I cannot say really a big hole because there was a custom talking about him and his ideals he was a pretty charismatic uh, person said by you know my family members and the people who loved him, but I learned only later, much later in life, actually even after my PhD, almost not just before my PhD, actually, that he was a partisan during World War II. So I feel that that kind of influenced some subconsciously the direction that I went also in my research. Uh, the other uh, probably influential aspects were obviously my family and my brothers that they were much older than me i was the youngest and so during the 70s they were very socially and politically engaged in the turmoils of italy of the 70s and uh, so all this kind of contributed in shaping my uh, personal sense of justice if you want and injustice uh, around the world but mainly also uh, in uh, what I would consider uh, the aspects that go beyond the woman, the humans, which is uh, the natural world, and and all that is non-human. Um, in fact, uh, one other uh, things that happened that helped me, according to me, to share my sensitivity toward the natural world is uh, growing up. Uh, spending a lot of time during summer vacations in the Alps, in the mountains. And then during my 20s, to be able to have a, a short but very significant experience in, doing, uh, in working uh, with a nonprofit uh, environmental organization as a park ranger in a uh, urban uh, park in Rome. And finally, yes, my trip in India which uh, during those years i was able to volunteer in a non-profit organization and uh, and learn a lot of things about um, the communities in india and the impoverished but also the happiness that can uh, can come even when you do not have much materially in your life so <clears throat> let's see uh, going back to my graduate uh, then uh, times at UCSD, I think I was the first one actually in being interested in doing research on eco-criticism. And uh, that uh, came in being able to uh, combine uh, my personal uh, passion and interest into my research. And uh, and because of this gap of 10 years, I think also that, I wanted to be able to connect the real world with some of the theories that I was learning during my graduate school. And so during the seminar on Marxism, I remember that uh, the professor showed us a video on uh, Vandana Shiva, who is an activist, an Indian activist, which I knew very well, but not through the studies, but through personal experience. Not that I know her personally, but I knew a lot about her. And so... That kind of made me understand that, yes, I can do that. And UCSD for as much as it it was the literature department or popular for its um, heavy theoretical um, foundation, allow me also to to see and be able to use some of my uh, practical and real uh, approaches that I have in my research into my PhD. Dissertation. So I would say that those years really have a big influence, and so it's it's a combination of personal experience, graduate studies experience, um, and my uh, and the guidance of my mentor. I would say and uh, advisor, Professor uh, Pasquale Verdicchio, who who is a Gramscian, who was uh, um, the first one. I think that translated from Italian into English, the Southern question, giving a little more commentary, in depth commentary about the historical background of those times. And so I was able then to think, okay, how do I put my personal sensitivity toward the natural world? And I had to, to focus on something. And I realized that actually the farming culture was what I really wanted to focus on the relationship with the land. And then Italy, what about the best, how can I say, uh, what was for me the best uh, opportunity was actually to focus on this huge shift that there was uh, between uh, the beginning of 1900, so before World War One and World War II, but especially World War Two, and then post-World War II. So socially speaking, we really see a shift from uh, a society and a population that was over 50% uh, peasants to becoming more and more urban. And that obviously shifted also the culture of Italy. And that, thanks on one level, the big economic booms of the 60s and 70s that Italy experienced, but then also with its uh, negative consequences, which could be some of these loss, cultural loss. And so to me, that was more or less the trajectory and um, and how that I arrived to to think of this book in the terms that it came out. Uh, one other thing that I wanted to maybe share is that within all these, I always uh, um, paid attention to ones like Gramsci says from below or subaltern uh, and so what it translated into me is uh, forms of activism, engagement in the from the people to solve their own problems without having always be told from the top what they need to do. And so these are some of the inspirations, I would say. When it comes to reading, I think uh, that again Vandana Shiva and Earth Democracy was one of the first readings that I did that inspired me to connect to slow food. And uh, uh, being slow food, an international movement today uh, that has thousands of uh, uh, forms of activism throughout the world, it made me always ask, why Italy? How come slow food started in Italy? I mean, today we look even uh, here in the United States, you go to grocery stores like uh, the famous and, and kind of gourmet uh, whole foods. And you see local and organic and natural. But those things were like this up to 60 years ago. We didn't need to label like that.
3: <clears throat> wow, wonderful. It. What an interesting, rich context of especially this image summers in the Alps. Like, how oh, wonderful. Mm-hmm. And was there a moment when, when you think about kind of the, the formation of this book, specifically about uh, within all the context of your studies and your life experiences and your, your interests when when it seemed right that this was the time to, to sit down and to think about this book specifically? The idea of the book after,
0: you know, you you finish your graduate school is always there. This is my first publication. Uh, came... <laughs> in a moment that probably is being common for many of us, which is the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, we got suddenly locked down. And at that point, uh, yes, we were working from home, but there was also a lot of uh, extra time to think and reorganize our thoughts. And I still remember our common friend, the colleague Andrea Righi, who one day, said, okay, we should start to organize also like a reading group since, you know, we're so farther away and we can connect. And you, Ilaria, you should start thinking writing in your book. And I was like, oh, wow. And, you know, coming from Andrea, which was also back then my colleague and the director of the Italian program, I'm like, okay, I better do that. And so that's how it started, honestly. But it was also very um, organic and natural because uh, before that, I I was in Ohio back then in Miami University, and so I already had uh, been involved in a research group uh, that we called the uh, Environmental Humanities with other colleagues from other departments. It was an interdisciplinary research group. We already did a symposium and worked on a volume. And so I felt it was the time for me to write my own uh, book. And so that's how it went. There was enough time. I, I sent a book proposal to my first publisher, which was Lexington Books. And within, uh, I don't know, I think less than three weeks, they replied that they were happy to to support me.
1: Thank you very much. and And that leads very nicely into my next question, because I think that your book and and what you've been saying in this conversation so far has a lot to do with what I might term a catalyst moment, a moment in which something happens and it shifts the conversation dramatically. You were talking about um, World War II. You were talking about the pandemic. um, You were talking about your own personal situations and how those might have shifted things. When I was looking at your book, I was thinking so much about these points of connection between the work that you're doing and some of the things that are happening in contemporary Puerto Rico. So, for example, I might look at Hurricane Maria as a catalyst moment, and that's not to say that there wasn't a lot of food-based work being done in perhaps a granular level, but it seems as though Hurricane Maria acted as a catalyst moment in which people in the archipelago realized that if approximately 87% of the food is imported from the United States, specifically from a port that was destroyed in Hurricane Irma, that made landfall two weeks before Maria did, that situations with food, food production and relationships with food had to change. And in many ways, I think that that's equaled an uplift of traditional food ways within the archipelago. And so I was wondering if you had something that you might say to um, our students who are engaging with this book on our campus, or even something that you want to say about connections between these ideas in Italy and these ideas unfolding in other parts of the world.
0: Wow. Thank you so much, for the the comments Richard and and the question. Um, yes you're right I think it's a moment of distress that somehow uh, forces us to think beyond the comforts that we give for granted uh, and 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 in this case food it seems to have been like uh, considered in the last 30 years or more more like a commodity. Then uh, rice, right, something that you can just purchase uh, especially here in nowadays, but also in Italy in the last years. the cheaper the better. And then we and that kind of uh, taking away the real value to food, uh, it's it's a way also to take in the real value from where the food come from, who produce the food, at least in my opinion. And taking it for granted that we can have it at any time. And then when these natural disasters, like you, you, you mentioned the hurricane right like, yeah, but when I was in India, it didn't happen before. I mean, the tsunami of 2004, it was something that really shocked the population. And then because I was in Southern India and that, um, that really made, again, think of the necessity of being more resilient and self uh, sufficient when it comes to food production. And how, you know, this uh, interconnectedness, let's um, call not interconnectedness, but more like this relationship that there is invisible relationship between the local and the global, where somehow the global, it seems to have been dominating the local, uh, in moments like this create, uh, it, 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 it creates an upside down reality, and, it, and it, it helps us to understand that we need to rely and be able to to be connected and understand and know our local uh, landscapes, realities, uh, biocultural diversity, so that we can relate to it and uh, and exchange in a, in a mutual mutually uh, beneficial uh, relationship, which means. Yes, we take, but we give back. And so one thing that I remember, even when I was in Ohio, but also here, it would be really thinking in terms of uh, learning how to do even a small vegetable garden uh, on campus, if it's possible. At uh, UCSD, when I was a graduate student, uh, undergraduate students started with a community garden. And then in uh, like forgotten spaces on campus, but then eventually, uh, <laughs> the regents had to acknowledge they were doing such a great job that now they're still continuing. Um, here in Arizona, uh, it's something that I'm still trying to figure it out. How is it working? This is a large campus, but uh, in Ohio, when I was there, uh, just a year before I arrived, there was a, a, the creation, the institution, not institution, but uh, they created the institute for so they had a couple of acres available and they hired this amazing um, uh, director of farming uh, that uh, had this background in agroecology and it was able to transform this couple of acres from a dry and uh, very unfertile land in a beautiful uh, uh, polyculture land, Uh, so they, he started to have a vegetable garden. And from that he created a CSA. So I believe that uh, if uh, there is a more sensitivity and awareness of uh, these issues, there is a lot that can be done in many places, everywhere in the world, actually.
2: slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest but let me play devil's advocate here let's see so no
3: that's a good thing Uh, (laughs) that's definitely not a problem Uh, reese's you did it you stumped this charming devil i can i can recall two really clear moments after the hurricane when they're really more relating to i guess water but there was a there were lines to get into the supermarket. And, uh, and I remember one of the people who just happened to be in line behind me at the supermarket saying, oh, I hope it rains today so that I can so I can wash. because Water was really a big issue mm-hmm. a few weeks after the storm. And, and my family and I had had to stockpile maybe 30 gallons of water and we had maybe 15 left. And we, we saw happened to run into one of my son's preschool friends' families there. Uh, and they were dragging a... Uh, a kiddie pool to put it in a truck and then they were going to drive the truck really slowly back to their house and they didn't have any water. And I said, well, we have some water, we're going to give you some water. And I can't tell you the the look on their face Mm -hmm. about that. We had water and we could give it to them. And it was these things that are such basic human activities that are, uh, these things happen and they are, it's almost like there's a house of cards all around us in a sense. And that these moments like that kind of just show how, how really fragile the systems are. And to have kind of infrastructural security is uh is really uh, a long way off
1: yeah and i like the way that you said uh it creates an upside down reality in the sense that we become so dependent upon external sources for our food and our water that when there's an internal need sometimes we're not prepared for that and i also really liked what you said and and i take that as a message uh, to our students and to our communities To take a moment to see what can be done and how you can participate, and I love the idea that the university administration acknowledged and praised the the campus garden once it was going really well.
0: Yeah, Uh, you know, yeah, (laughs) you touched upon a very delicate point. I think the administration acknowledged the beginning, this work, and. uh, I think at a certain point, uh, one thing that, uh, that the university systems I feel need to to kind of acknowledge is that education that uh, we are offering uh, doesn't have to be always uh, tied to, and, and I apologize, maybe this is not in the right place, but to profit. Because that uh, Institute for Food was mainly an educational uh, uh, ground students would go and would learn uh, to plant seeds and see by planting seeds how they would sprout and then many of them they would just come and volunteer because they said it was therapeutic so to me what it really showed is that reconnecting to what surrounds us uh, reconnect to uh, humans, to the other aspects of reality around us, they make us uh, understanding that we are all part of the same system. And uh, which is uh, not, uh, it doesn't have to be always where, you know, at the top of the pyramid is the human. Because we realize, like in in times, like you were saying, um, uh, Jeffrey, before, of uh, natural disasters that, Um, Or in the case of the pandemic, so it could be a hurricane, it could be a tsunami, but it could be the pandemic, something even more invisible uh, and not so tangible, that helping each other, it's something that uh, can be very powerful. And in terms of uh, natural resources, if we end up not exploiting everything, maybe we can be able to regenerate them. And yes, it's true. Some parts of the world uh, have some weaknesses in some of the natural elements. I live uh, surrounded by the desert, so here too. I mean, uh, there is a lot going on with the lack of water. Uh, but even California, even more. Even if they have, you know, like in the case of Puerto Rico, you're surrounded by the ocean. It doesn't mean anything, right? Uh, there are other ways that um, this lacks. So. I think that, uh, in my case, food, it was just a starting point to show that everything and we are all connected with what surrounds us. And, uh, and so if we're able to, as a scholars in our case, but for graduate students, to, be, to use what we're passionate about and not only do research on that, but be able to relate to that in a very pragmatic way. So how they used to say, to walk the talk, then maybe all these big discourses on climate change can be, become less and less threatening and and more, uh, and we can all engage in a way that we can help to to mitigate all this, uh, this topic. and. Uh, <laughs> And futures that you know they kind of uh, seems to, to be just they're to us.
3: We had a, an activity yesterday here on campus about uh, in part about sustainability and, and integrating sustainable perspectives for for STEM. And there was a, a, ta- a just a, a brief part of the discussion about how the transition from uh, polytheism to monotheism, the Christianization or the Islamicification or the the, you know, the the three great you know uh, monotheisms and. And the way that those three, which are encompass almost half of the world population about how those three are are all very similar in that they're social religions in that in what they replaced in, in many if we're use kind of Western Europe and, and also the Americas as a as examples, what they replaced was a, a spiritual system in which uh, there was a, a balance of physical things of the environment as well as human affairs. whereas once a sin for lack of a better term is against a person and, and the, the, the environment is lost. You know fast forward two thousand years and we have where we are now that nobody cares about the, these things and you have to work backwards to, to really develop sensibilities i think the idea of spirituality without it how to involve uh and it, and, it, and one of the questions were how well how would we do that i don't really know but i think that when you just it happened you know this and the kind of the christianization as it were or the the, the mono monotheismization of, of kind of reality that happened it was a programmatic thing that was real as in large part for the by, the by the roman empire i don't know if. I, uh, specifically relates to to food, but as just as as a, the relationship that human beings have with spirituality, but also in a, in a, in a broader sense, with their their surroundings. But that that actually wasn't my question. <laughs> my question, yeah. one of the things I have for uh, that I often, I, I feel like I, maybe I give too many writing assignments in class, but, but one of the things that I, I always yeah. say is students is is created one of or writing is is an excellent form of learning. And I was wondering, are there any uh, as you sat down and, and wrote this book, were there were there things that you? What are some of the things that you learned as you wrote that, that maybe were unexpected that you that came out as your of your of your writing process as it were?
0: I would like to comment also what you said before, but yes, yeah, so during the writing. So for me, um, writing in English is not writing in my native language, right? So it, it's kind of a very cathartic moment because I have to think double, uh, and then I have to find the terms that. Uh, kind of translated what I would like to say, and then my vocabulary is limited. And so it's kind of a, it's a process. But what I really um, learned is that it, it's a way to finally, especially when it's published and you have to say, make it real or what you have inside can be communicated. So it's a way of sharing. And uh, and if we, if we all have something to say, that I feel can help other people to to accomplish how to say to to enlarge their perspective and vision of the world, regardless of the topic, regardless of uh, the discipline and uh, and the perspective and the angle that we take. So in my case, I have to say that um, I didn't even know I was going to go in this direction, and it was one thing after the other. It started with this uh, idea of peasant culture and when did it start? and then you start asking questions to yourself and so you find yourself in a library in my case i had to go uh do research back to italy i did some summer schools in uh, in the land of, uh, of the chadney family because uh, their farm became actually a museum and, and archive and then from there i learned the uh, training before I learned about Nuto but the work that Nuto does, it's really based on oral history that he put it in a, a, a recording, he recorded in audio recording. So that eventually became uh, another museum. So what I, while I was writing, for me, it was uh, making sense of all my experiences and be able to share in a way that uh, was a little more linear and logical for uh, who would have the time one day to read some of the things I wrote. I don't know if that makes sense, but it was also very, it was a, a time to grow.
3: It's, really, uh, it's to a wonderfully written book, by the way, and I really like the way that you just, just described it, making sense of my experiences, that's mm-hmm. a, it's a beautiful thing, it's a beautiful reflection.
0: Oh, thank you, Jerry. <laughs> and um yeah and and, and so again that uh, i don't know if that comes up uh, enough in this uh in this book but each chapter is related to and it's still existing or a legacy that uh, these uh, artists like the case of hermano olmi or historian and ex-partisan as the case of neutral admi or farmers or carlo Petrini obviously who is still alive and is doing a lot um, from theory to practice, or sometimes even, even if it doesn't make sense from practice to theory, meaning that when we talk about farming, farmers or peasants in that, in back then in Italy, they didn't even know that they knew. They were just doing it. And if, if someone was asking them, okay, how do you do that? They wouldn't be able probably to explain in an educated and logical way. But they were able to show in it. And so I feel that this kind of approach in research can be uh, very useful today uh, to reconnect in ways that can be practical to knowledges that are very useful today. Uh, one could be farming, uh, another could be food. But then uh, you were talking before about spirituality, and I was thinking also of the wisdom of. Uh, native people they have a uh, wisdom and when we talk about native people could be american indians but could be indigenous people in general wherever they are that they've been dispossessed by their uh, ancient knowledges then they were they were much more uh, connected to the surrounding world than it is the western tradition and so i wonder if sometimes uh as we can have a uh, uh, we can act in more humble ways toward these other traditions that they can teach us something that, like you were mentioning before, maybe we have lost in the last centuries.
1: Uh, Thank you, Ellaria. Sometimes I wonder if one of the reasons why I'm so interested in food studies is because I love to eat so much and I want to try everything that I possibly can try in the world. Um, And so I'd like to move the conversation a little bit to eating. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we try to talk about a lot in some of our courses is simulacra and the idea that the symbol of the real in some ways becomes more real than the real itself. Mm -hmm. And so I was wondering if you had some thoughts you'd like to share with us about um, Italian food in the United States, Mm -hmm. especially something like an olive garden that would be... um, more similar to a fast food approach than a slow food approach, especially in terms of commodification of food and in terms of sending uh, pre-prepared meals into a restaurant to be reheated or to be um, cooked uh, from their frozen state. And, And just if you had some thoughts about how that fits into your theorization of food, but also how that fits into people's Identifying culturally with certain kinds of foods.
0: Ah, uh, that's a that's a very nice question, and um, Richa. And so let's see. Yes, the yeah. ah, uh, it's hard. It's a hard question. So I I still think that we need right now in these words that local and global is very blurred. So uh, when you think of a. Uh, ethnic food let's consider italians and ethnic food as it could be chinese or uh, indian or uh, mexican food right Uh, it all they all tend to be a little bit adapted to the culture where they want to become more and more popular and arriving in in united states i have to say i rarely go to any olive garden i think i stepped in uh, two times because they took me there and It becomes a marketing. It cannot be even considered Italian, honestly. But that's how it is interpreted here. Uh, I was very surprised the first time uh, I saw a pizza with chicken. i like, seriously, we don't do that in Italy. So how can we even consider that an Italian pizza? Now, they would do it here. But I, I think uh, when uh, people start traveling and they go to the places of origin for certain foods, where you know, originated, like, let's talk about the stereotypical Italian food as pizza and pasta, or even ice cream, gelato, they see how it, it is totally done differently. So, uh, this simulacrante, like you were saying before, um, probably helped to create some sort of images and, and in our minds and our experiences that are very far away from the original. So a way that I, with my students, usually I try to talk to is uh, starting from uh, the beginning. Exactly. What is that you're eating? Start thinking more about where this food is coming from. Because if it is coming, like even in Italy right now, children think that meat comes from a carton, like a, a bottle. They don't even think that maybe there was a cow before that. (laughs) <laughs> right, and that to do that to produce that much milk it means that this cow has to have some calves and those calves have to be taken away so that the, the cow wants to produce more milk. I mean there is all this thing behind and so I think that with knowledge then we can reutilize our intellect in ways that can help us to to go back to the source. And, and that's like what I'm trying to do in the introduction, when I talk about my memories of fonduta that my mom used to do. And when I, I ate for the first time, the, the fontina cheese, this cheese that it's in, uh, produced fresh in the Alps. And then I could see, then I finally could understand what my mom was saying. Only when I ate it fresh from the place where it is produced and, uh, and so this is something that maybe it's a re-education to taste also and culture related to food. Uh, I remember one thing I did in the past with my classes was, uh, to give two little cups of, um, I did it with two different kinds of foods. One was uh, fresh raspberries coming from a farmer's market. So from a farm nearby local farm. Another, there were raspberries coming from the grocery store. And then they had to learn eating and try to describe what they were tasting. And then in the end, what they liked the best. Uh, my experience was always 50 50, sometimes even more. The people, students would like the one coming from the grocery store, which had a very bland taste. And so, Massimo Montanari, which is an Italian uh, media, uh, historian, on uh, of food, uh, talk about food as culture, and even taste can be a culture. But then, if uh, this culture get uh, takes, uh, you know, removes us from the original uh, fresh product, then uh, there you go, Nisha. We have this packaged food that who knows what they have inside. And who knows what's the purpose of those packaged food? And I, I'm not gonna go there now.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant, excellent. I, I really, enjoy, I was really engaged by your, your comment about uh, people who work as as peasants or as as people who who distribute food and work with food and and maybe not being able to understand that not or at least express not understand, of course there uh it reminded me a bit of of when you ask uh somebody who hasn't studied languages about language about the plus quorum perfecto or something like that and and about how uh this kind of on bringing into the into that discussion kind of the then the way that interacting with the, the land and interacting with seasons interacting with rain and the seasons as, as kind of a language that is it, it's there and and i think that people who have it often don't don't appreciate it and, and as a skill as, a, as an artisanship to that kind of relationship and, and i wanted to, to cite as especially what you describe in in the introduction as other kinds of knowledge and also bioregional awareness and attitude i feel like those have a lot of overlap with the, what would be kind of the, the decolonial move as it were and one of the things that you just said about re-education with a lot of things in kind of the decolonial turn have to do with kind of unlearning uh, and i feel that uh maybe, maybe you might expand a bit on this but I, I think that that food studies and kind of the consciousness of food and about where it comes from and how it's de- Distributed and how it's uh, is kind of a, potentially a, a place where there's a lot to, to there's a lot to reflect on. There's a lot to, to grow from. A lot of reflection, critical reflection, not just about food, but about a lot of other things. What if you might uh, have some have some thoughts on on food as a as kind of a decolonial apparatus?
0: Sure. Um, yeah, like you said, now food studies can be uh, it's a relatively recent uh, field of studies, so. But it has been taken already you know, different uh, directions. So there is the one that is more historically based, the one that is more culturally based, the one that analyzes text to go back, you know, to the origins of certain foods. And uh, in my case, I am interested in the relationship between food, environment, land, and justice. So the connection between uh, what is, uh, who is working the land. So healing and how they do it and for what purposes. And then what is the result of the land? And then the food becomes the result and the product that actually, so it's all connected to me. And uh, and that can become uh, a source of health and happiness as a source of poison and uh, illness. Um, And so in this case, I would say that... um, food can become uh, a way to rethink uh, in healing ways. So yes, I think uh, we, if we're talking about decolonial, maybe we should decolonize uh, the land that we inhabit in a way that we've been doing it for centuries. And a way to learn how to do that is through, I would say indigenous peoples or um, people who've been using the land in the proper way, which is, in this case, um, again, I would say, not the industrial and the the, the consumeristic way of thinking, right? So, again, I, I started, I think, a, a while ago talking about how we consider food now as a commodity instead of a, a, a something that has value. And so, if we consider something that has value, also our relationship with food changes, and then it it is food, it becomes the land. So when we, ca- we talk about agriculture, for example, the agricultural system and industry is right now one of the most polluting elements and poisonous in, in the atmosphere that we uh, as humans are creating. Uh, we can revert that and we can learn that in, uh, from people who are doing that in a, a more regenerative way. And, uh, but to do that, we need to change the way we approach it. So that's when I think, uh, and I use the term paradigm shift is uh, is essential. I don't know if I'm really answering your question. Sometimes I, I get think that's lost a beautiful
3: it. response. Yeah, I, I do. I think that that's a, a wonderful way to put it. And what, you're, what you've just said just reminded me of a, a before I was a professor when I was in graduate school. I, I worked as a taxi driver for, for a number of years, and and one of the pe- one of the men, other people who was a taxi driver was a man named Alberto, and he was illiterate. And he, this was kind of before GPS and everything that now kind of dominates driving as like a human activity. But, and so everybody had maps in their cart and, and he didn't have a map. And he, and I, it took me a few years to, to perceive that he was illiterate. And once I did, I, I figured out, I figured a lot of things became clear. But one of the things that the maps, one of the things that was clear during the years that I was a driver is that the maps everybody was using were not, they weren't, they weren't always right. And always the question was from the, from the dispatcher, when anybody had had an uncertainty about how to get someplace, it was always ask Albert because Albert is the person who knows these things. And he had like a kind of intellect that is the type of thing that's not recognized. And I think about his kind of internal maps of the, And I think illiterate does not mean inarticulate. And he was one of the, I think that type of knowledge that he had and, and kind of, I don't want to be kind of in in defense of illiteracy, but I think that there are certain, uh, and that this kind of really speaks to, to kind of the, if we were to kind of reindigenize or or rethink our relationship with land, our relationship with knowledge, a relationship with all these certainties that kind of drive us toward this type of kind of monotheistic, yes. but also kind of mono whatever, the universalizing experience of being a human being, and and there are other experiences that are that are really clouded, and 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 in fact, I would say in in the case of Alberto being just uh, not only not recognized but penalized and. And then, which is, I think, is really, uh, I think, what you we were just, I think, alluding to with with that response, I think, was similar similar things about rethinking our relationships with land and with these these production models. And,
1: yeah, and, and just right. to add that, you know, we uh, universally are dismissing experiential knowledges at this point in the 21st century. And when we turn back to what you're talking about with maybe environmental racism and environmental justice, On a world stage or a global stage, we are very specifically saying this is the kind of knowledge that is valuable and this is the kind of knowledge that is worth less than somebody who has a piece of paper, somebody who is a researcher. And it would make a lot more sense, and I think I'm echoing what you're saying here, um, especially when you're talking about um, the need to re-educate or the the need to go back to an origin is that until we're in a moment that we can recognize experiential knowledge and eyewitness testimony to something that is healthy for the human, healthy for the environment and healthy for the planet, we're not going to really move forward in substantial ways.
0: No, uh, yeah, you're right. Um, and without taking you know away the value of writing uh, uh, and the academic education is essential, absolutely but I feel that um, there's been a disconnection, like there's been this diff, um, separate, and again, maybe because of my uh, taking this uh, 10 years gap between my education in Italy and then my doctorate degree, uh, between what's really going on in the world and what's going on in uh, what they used to be called the ivory tower. Well, the ivory tower cannot be ivory tower anymore. Uh, the two need to talk to each other and they can uh, they can help each other. So. I don't know, and you talked about experiential learning. Exactly. Uh, I remember, again, when I was doing my doctorate, there was this uh, tendency to, which was with very good intentions, obviously, uh, to invite, right, like activists, and we still do, right, to have talks in uh, in our universities and campuses to students. I feel that right now it's also a little bit the time to do the opposite to bring our students to see what's going on in the world with some experiential learning activities. Because if not, we still continue to consider that the, there is not this horizontal relationship. It's always a hierarchical relationship. And we're doing the, um, some sort of a favor, you know, like we're creating an honorable situation. The truth is we, have, we need each other. We learn from each other and we help each other. And that can be translated also in uh, environmental activism, and with the food that we eat. Uh, we can eat uh, pre-packaged food, but then when we start thinking about, OK, what are we really eating? And who are we really supporting when we do that? So again, translating uh, theory into practice. And if we stay only on the theoretical aspect, in these times, contemporary times, um, I don't know how much we're going to be really able to to change things.
3: Yeah, thank you for there, that, that was uh, for me one of the strengths of your book is is specifically that you can kind of sense this, these sensibilities that are, I would say, against the grain, but really have different depths than kind of traditional approaches to uh, to, to these types of topics. And, and kind of eh, partiendo, they say base, no? they're kind of coming from that that base. I wanted to to ask you just in, in in light of what you just mentioned about how Difficult it is, and since the kind of industrialization of food, but also, also these categories of of, of being, and categories of spacing, categories of, mm-hmm. like we were talking before we came, kind of on the air, as it were, about uh, the kind of the, the distinction between kind of Tijuana in San Diego and, and how those the ways that that has been kind of really the platform of of humanity has been so controlled and kind of pre prepared and. Uh, in light of all of these things, and, and especially, especially perhaps, of digitization and kind of the the new empire of the smartphone, mm-hmm. that were in uh, these, these are conditions that are. Uh, do you think these are also changing our relationships with with the food, with land that it's producing, and with the communities that are producing it? And and I don't know. I, I, do you see Do you see any any kind of suggestions beyond? I think the suge- the great suggestion in your book is to, to to be conscious of these things. But in any uh, I guess to kind of move towards uh, uh, another, like a uh, kind of a, an action or, or a collective way of thinking or a collective way of being conscious of these things that would that would kind of work towards uh, a more healthy way of, of being human.
0: Well, I will. Uh, we have to <laughs> absolutely. I think uh, these uh, you know these tools are there, and, and uh, it's part of uh, of. Technological progress, uh, AI. We know it's something that it's already around us. It's the way we use it, but it's uh, it's gonna dictate the outcomes. Um, and these things can be amazing tools. I mean, totally. Uh, we can use to connect to each other, and not to falsify or create, you know, fake things. Because come on, we right now there is even lab meat. Meat can be. Uh, now created artificially. I don't even know, I don't even understand the need to do that. So, but those discourses and those realities are out there. Uh, I think we can use the same technology to a way that can help and be very much uh, useful to each other. I'm thinking of this podcast. I, how we would have ever been able to talk about this if there was not this platform right now. So thank you, Jeffrey, Uh, but we can talk also, uh, I believe probably even the farmers are grateful to certain things, including GPS. Um, I was um, talking to a film director, uh, Anna Kauber, I I think I mentioned in the book also, uh, she did these film documentaries on women shepherds. On some of these women, uh, obviously, when you go in the mountains, there is no much signal but now the signals are stronger and blood can be useful even for them. Uh, there are certain things that you can do to retrace the animals so they don't get lost. So things can be used in, in many ways. It's up to us what choices we make. Um, I think uh, one thing uh, I wanted to share with you guys is when I went in, in 2022 to Terra Madre the event uh, in Turin, and Terra Madre is this network of uh, food producers, chefs, educators, and, and they meet uh, once every two years, but then they continue to stay connected those two years uh, through many other events. And uh, I went to this dinner where there was uh, this uh, chef, an uh, indigenous chef. It's um, from the uh, South um, Lakota uh, tribe. Uh, His name, he's called, I mean, he calls himself Chef Chef Sherman. And uh, I quote this uh, at the end, basically, in my conclusion. And I thought that it was so profound what he said, because he is not denying his origin, but at the same time, he's also acknowledging that he lives in a different world and he doesn't want to go back. It's not possible to go back. So we need to create those bridges. And uh, I'm going to quote what he said. Uh, we are in a different world. We can't go back in time and just be in a different time period. We lost a lot of indigenous knowledge in the United States because of the way indigenous people were treated. Some tribes retained a lot of their knowledge and some tribes lost everything, including language. It's really hard, but I feel there are a lot of pieces we can rebuild for me. It's about being on the path to try to understand as much of that knowledge and education as possible and applying it in the world we live today. It's a chance to evolve into something else. I'm sorry, something different. We have all the technology. We can share all the knowledge so quickly across the world. It is important to utilize that. But it is also important to understand the amazing knowledge our ancestors had and trying to move forward into a better direction. As indigenous people, we can process the two worlds we live in and walk through that line to evolve and change into something else. And that's what we have to do. I was able to eat in his
1: restaurant a couple of years ago and to visit um, I'm going to say school. I don't have the title of it off the tip of my tongue, but a cultural heritage center with a working kitchen for young people and, and other folks to come in and and take courses on indigenous food uh, ways and and methodology. So I'm so glad that you made that reference. Uh, thank you for that. Um, I, I'm curious to learn about how you see this particular book as situated within your your um, research, and and where you think this project might lead you in the future?
0: Thank you for the question. So first of all, this book uh, has uh, you know and specific messages, but it, it is it has also some sort of uh, I don't know, I, I don't think we can call it weaknesses or is lacking some other information. Uh, so one thing that i said in the introduction and I wanna keep saying is that uh, geographically speaking because of certain purposes and the limitation of, a, of the project, I focus mainly in Northern Italy, same or similar or even more relevant realities are also in Southern Italy and around the world. And so number one, and so that is what uh, what is missing in this book that is taken to the next uh, steps. And um, right now, I'm interested in uh, I'm working uh, with other colleagues in uh, in another food studies project. And personally, I'm interested in uh, what are the young people, the, the the generation that you know that we're trying to to pass the baton are doing about it. And I'm. Uh, I want to be very optimistic because I feel that we need to also share that part, you know, beside all these, uh, negative uh, things that are happening around us. Um, and so I'm, I'm looking into that. I'm looking into who are these new organic intellectuals, what kind of background they have. I have a project that I want to, I don't want to say too much right now, but I'm looking into a new project. Yeah that it's, again, trying to connect these past uh, uh, that is, has some values to in new ways, the ways that can include also technology, uh, but not only, uh, and reconnect uh, with the land in healthier ways, both uh, intellectually and uh, physically.
1: Yeah, I appreciate okay. that very much. I think that within the climate justice community, we're um, not quickly enough, but, but quickly realizing that we haven't had enough discussion about hope. And in order to work for change in the future, that conversation about hope has to be closely intertwined in our conversation about what are the problems that we're facing.
0: Yes, I think that the phase of acknowledging the damages of the poisonous that is around us has been done a great work in eco-criticism and environmental humanities and that level. And there is much to be done. Absolutely. But on the other hand, there is also, we need to start looking also what can be done to revert that in order to, to offer something better. Uh, it made me think, for example, when I will, the, the volume that I was, that I never mentioned with the mm-hmm. environmental research group that came out, it's called uh, Contesting Extinction and Regenerative Futures. So actually it was uh, Contesting Extinction, uh, Decolonial and Regenerative Futures. That was the title of the volume. And uh, and at the beginning, the symposium wanted to be about extinction. But then we had this linguistic uh, professor who we invited from UC Riverside, who said, well, If we're not ready to contest, also the idea of extinction, I don't know if I want to participate. And we're oh, no, 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 we want you. So that helped us so much because, for example, he is uh, uh, working on revitalizing the native language of the Miami people. And he told us how many times he uh, he had to rewrite on Wikipedia. You go to Wikipedia and you read uh, Miami language as a dead language. And he said no it's not that and it's not extinct it was government and now we're revitalizing it so that principle to me can be applied in so many other fields when it, we talk about uh, sustainability and environment and climate change yeah,
3: it is a excellent a wonderful comments here it, it made me think a little bit about uh my, my wife is from ecuador so we spend some time in in the south of ecuador each year and and the, the communities, there, the indigenous communities specifically have okay, an approach to food production that is more of, the question is not so much like what can we sell, but within our climate, what is the, the food that we can produce that is most you know, nutrition for us, but also uh, in the longer term. And, and those types of experiences, I, I think it's not really, is it really possible in, in kind of the Western industrialized, especially kind of the U.S., was just such an unhealthy food culture in in itself um and i don't know i I question about that about it seems the solutions being being there but it's the the driving ethos of kind of especially in the u.s kind of this money issue of of, yeah there's questions i think how to how to break that but it makes me very happy to know that you are working on questions like that (laughs) Uh, and 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 so it's really been a delight for me thank you so much for for this excellent wonderful conversation uh
1: what a joy it was to speak with you today, Laria. I'm I'm very grateful that I had this opportunity, and thank you also to Jeffrey for inviting me to join in this podcast episode.
3: Yeah, gracias por venir. See, and you're hopefully we can repeat soon with your next book, Ilaria.
0: Oh, thank you so much, Jeffrey. And thank you so much for inviting me, and thank you so much, Risha, for being the co-host of this podcast today.